0: This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast.
1: I've often thought that if I were in the college or university classroom teaching, I would make a part of my syllabus a refusal to use pronouns the students pronouns i would simply assign the students various places to sit and the number and i would call them by number because you know you can get fired for using the wrong pronoun in the classroom there's a washington post story about a professor who has been reprimanded for refusing to use a transgender student's pronouns the courts say he can sue greetings and welcome to crossroads with terry mattingly i'm todd wilkin thanks for tuning us in Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back.
0: Glad to be here.
1: We are accustomed to hearing about these pronoun disputes or speech codes in religious schools. What about when it's a state school?
0: Well, it's just kind of an academic freedom thing in general. And when it happens in a church school, the defense, or any other religious school, not just churches, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, what happens there is the these are doctrinally defined institutions, which means they are expected to have a very clear handbook and a very clear statement of doctrines and moral issues and policies. Now, you and I have talked about this, gosh, how many times, you know, over the last five or six years, and we're getting used to this. And put a sticker on that in your mind, because the Equality Act conceivably could change all of that. We'll come back to that. Now, I first started, other than my church state studies degree and stuff like that, In the real world, I began tiptoeing into this the first time I ever met David French, about 15 or 16 years ago, when he was defending the rights of traditional Christian groups who were being thrown off of Ivy League campuses. Now, Ivy League schools, of course, for the most part, are private schools, which means, be they liberal or conservative, they have a right to establish their own doctrines and stuff and expect people— who voluntarily study there, teach there, work there. I mean, no one has to go to a private school. No one has to go to a private school, so they're there as volunteers. Well, in my very first conversation years ago with David French, I said, well, what would the situation be in a state school? And he said, that's a really interesting case, because there you have another layer of intrigue because you're dealing with a forum sustained with taxpayer dollars. Now it's not a religious institution, but it's very important that a state school also very clearly tell its faculty and its students what its policies are related to academic freedom, free speech, student publications, whatever. And this is a lively area. I mean, many professors through the years have fought with state schools, and these are always intriguing situations. But for today's discussions, we have three different layers of this that we have to think about. The very first one is just the simple issue of free speech. And in particular, you have here the specter of coerced speech. Can a state-funded agency force an American citizen to speak things and say things that they do not believe are true, and that specifically violate their conscience. And we have everything from court cases about requiring, oh, I don't know, Jehovah's Witnesses to say the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, comes to mind. We have a whole bunch of things. Coerced speech is also what's going on with the Colorado Bake Shop case. In other words, can someone walk in the door of a business, it's not a religious ministry, of a business, yet ask someone to create a product that contains intellectual content that violates their beliefs and conscience. So you have a similar thing there, but at the same time now you have the religious liberty concerns of the professor who has a philosophy professor At Shawnee State University who has openly identified himself as a Christian. And that doesn't cover everything, but it's not to be sneezed at either. The religious liberty concerns of an individual citizen are very important, and the state needs to show a compelling interest in limiting the religious liberty. I'll also mention one other thing because it will come up. Obviously, all of this is affected greatly if the Equality Act passes. And these are the kinds of cases that are going to go zooming right back to the U.S. Supreme Court, like carrier pigeons. You know, the minute we have Equality Act on all of these sorts of issues, because the Equality Act specifically limits and undercuts the impact of RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and... There are some interesting rifra angles to this, which we can discuss as we get into it. But then I will add that this is a state school, and normally I'll be interested in seeing if teachers' unions or anything get involved in this, because normally the academic freedom of a professor to say what she or he wants to say and to express their beliefs, that's normally pretty strictly defined. I mean, a Christian student sitting in a biology classroom at Shawnee State University couldn't raise their hand and say, Professor, what you're saying right now really, really offends my view of creation. You know, I mean this you can't do this. You can't just keep continue to discuss this, let alone test me on it. Well, that would be laughed out of a court. But we're now into a situation where someone is raising their hand and saying, How you address me i'm in charge of that you're not in charge of that and if you don't say what i want you to say we're going to get you fired i think it'd be interesting on state school campuses if catholics and orthodox uh, insisted on being called by their saints names yes i see your hand saint brendan of myra what do you have to say about that that would be i mean you see what i'm saying you could get into some other name issues here
1: yeah what if what if my preferred pronoun was your majesty Or your eminence.
0: I don't think there's anything whatsoever that would prevent you from making that case. Now I think you'd get shot down, but I'd love to see the reasons. So you see see what I'm saying about these three layers? In a state university, state schools can have policies and what amount to doctrines, but just like at a religious school, it's very important that they state them right up front. Now, what happens if Shawnee State University writes into its professors' contracts? You must use the pronouns of students. Notice in the Washington Post story, which I think, by the way, is not all that bad. I mean, it's pretty hostile to the the individual in terms of who gets quoted. But the basic issues here are covered. The people at the university suggested that the professor simply stop using pronouns and go by last name, which the professor, in the case of the student, and maybe the professor could just refer to all students in the classroom by their last names. Uh, that doesn't strike me as discriminatory, but the student immediately said back, that doesn't validate me the way I want to be validated, that I refuse to accept that and will sue. And thus we have this case.
1: So you said that the Washington Post was hostile to the professor in terms of who got quoted. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, there are church-state experts on both sides of these issues. There are academic freedom experts on both sides of these issues. There are people like David French and others. And so you have kind of the obligatory quote from the lawyer for the professor— if I remember correctly, we do have one of those in here. Oh, I, th- I don't think we do. I'm scrolling through the story right now. I think we just have a quote from the the court opinion by the Trump appointed lawyer, Justice. And of course, it makes sure that we know it's a Trump appointed justice. No, looking down here, we do have an Alliance for Defense of Freedom quote in here. But the the majority of the material in this is coming from the viewpoint of the school. I'm not saying that that's inappropriate right now, and the main thing I can say is that the the crucial issues get raised in this piece, except I would have added a paragraph that mentioned the potential collision here between RIFRA and the Equality Act in a case of this kind.
1: I'm curious about the fact that the court has, at least a lower court, has said that he can sue because he was in some way reprimanded for this what does the story have to say about that
0: well i mean it's reprimanded is one thing threatened to lose his job is carrying it quite to a different level and that's really important that to me the most interesting section of this story is is the part that calls up specifically rifra now for years you and i have been discussing the fact that we still don't have a Supreme Court decision that explicitly equates race with gender identity or just race with uh, sexual identity and orientation in general. Now, there's a very interesting quote in here, which I'd like to read, that pins this down where it has to be discussed here's the material. But Andrew Koppelman, a constitutional law expert at Northwestern University who has followed the litigation, said the court's reasoning opened the door for discrimination. Someone has to be discriminated against here, by the way, as a parenthetical, either the professor or the student. But anyway, now the here's the quote. As a hypothetical, let's just suppose that a professor thinks that the honorific Mr is okay, but not for African Americans, because it gives African Americans a respect he doesn't believe they deserve, Koppelman said. I think a court would say that that alone would create a hostile environment. I don't understand why applying the wrong honorific only to transgender students doesn't create a hostile environment also. Now, once here's the, the usual direct comparison between race and either gender identity, or sexual orientation. Race, of course, you know, has always been dealt with as an issue of DNA, where we're now into this situation the court is wrestling with, with these, frankly, mysterious concepts of identity and orientation and behaviors, things that don't show up in a lab, you know, in some kind of neutral setting. But let me tell you why that quote jumped out at me as the rifra issue that has to be discussed. If this professor went to court and decided to use RIFRA as a defense, it's important to realize that RIFRA is not an absolute defense. RIFRA is a law that says you have a right to make the following argument. The court does not have to accept this argument, but you have a right to make it, and when you get into other decisions, The court then has to have a compelling state interest to cancel your religious conviction. Now what's really interesting here is, by the way, we're not told this particular professor's faith, whether he's Catholic or Baptist or Episcopal or whatever, but with RIFRA, you sometimes get into what some of us who argue about church state issues all the time have called the 200-year rule, and that is Can they cite a branch of mainstream Christianity, let alone this particular professor's chosen faith, the faith of his life, childhood, his conversion, or whatever it happens to be? Can they show a Christian faith that teaches that you shouldn't show respect for African Americans? Is there any parallel doctrinal stand here and, of course, the answer there is going to be no. Yet if you then say, is there a history of traditional Christian teachings on the issue of male and female gender, sex, etc., of course you have centuries of teachings, all the way back to you know documents 60 to 100 years into the life of the early church. And if he's a Catholic, for example... He can stand up and read them canon law and the catechism if he cho- chose to. So he would have, from a historical perspective, a pretty strong RIFRA defense here. I, I think if they had done more interviews with church state experts and specifically have raised whether RIFRA would apply to this particular citizen making this particular case. That would have been very good to hear. And then you need to immediately say, how does that change under the Equality Act?
1: So Terry, you've also written recently in kind of a related way, you have written, Get Ready for More Stories in Which Religious Believers Clash With Increasingly Woke Doctrines Proclaimed and Enforced by the HR Personnel in Modern Corporations. You ask, but what about for-profit companies led by executives who want to maintain faith-friendly images. What are the limits of their policies? What are you talking about there?
0: Well, the woke human resources department, in a way, is exactly what we're talking about in this case with the state. You know, at some point, if the human relations department and academic departments of state universities start creating what amount to doctrinal covenants, you know, and expecting faculty to to sign them, that's going to be precisely that kind of an issue. We're hearing now about similar things happening to people working in police departments, people working in big tech companies, you know, to where basically they are required to take classes in everything from critical race theory to sexual orientation to sexual identity. And there are rallies to show support for their gay and lesbian and trans colleagues and they're expected to wear you know buttons and hang banners across their doorways and Christians are beginning to ask I've been hearing this for a couple of years and of course it's a huge theme and our friend Rod Dreher's last two books have raised questions about this as a part of soft totalitarianism this is not the state jumping on your religious freedom this is your boss well, it's a different situation when you flip this around and you have a company, I want to stress here that we're talking about the Dave Ramsey kind of financial services company and Empire Ramsey Solutions and this is a for-profit company. And in this in the post I wrote went up just a few hours ago, I praised the Nashville Tennessean for, once again, while it was a fairly hostile story to Ramsey, which that's a long history of clashes with Ramsey and the press, but we don't have time to get into that. But I actually thought this Tennessean story did a great job of making a distinction between what these kinds of cases look like in a nonprofit situation, specifically a religious nonprofit situation, and what it looks like when you're dealing with what is a for-profit Corporation that still wants somehow to hold up that it has a unique Christian ethos attached to itself and to its products. Now, this is a really interesting situation. I especially appreciated, and I, if if this part of the story was wrong, I think the Ramsey attorney should have really stressed it. According to this story, there is no employee handbook that defines what the righteous living clause means that's held over employees. One of these 14 things that the the company wants to say defines and represents its work. One of them is righteous living. And under that, it says that just over the years, it's kind of evolved, that part of that is that you're not supposed to be having sex outside of marriage now that's the sort of thing that you could totally understand a christian university getting into but a for-profit corporation let me let me give you a comparison the comparison i make in in my piece hobby lobby is a, a for-profit corporation and hobby lobby of course won a much disputed victory at the us supreme court on the issue of whether it could be forced to include certain forms of contraceptives in its employee health benefits plan. Well, that's a very interesting case, and I kind of was surprised, frankly, that Hobby Lobby won that case. But notice the difference between saying Hobby Lobby has a right not to pay a certain type of benefit versus Hobby Lobby saying, we demand and we will investigate through unspecified means, whether or not you're having sex before or outside of marriage. Isn't that kind of an interesting requirement of employees at a for-profit institution? So that's the issue that's at the heart of this case, which is it takes this whole thing to another level. This is not just behavior in the office. Several people have said that, well... This really is a way of being discriminatory against women, because women would have much more trouble hiding a pregnancy. And the case being discussed in the Tennessean story does concern a pregnancy. How in the world would you investigate the private lives of men? Well, Ramsey, in a different story with NBC, a Ramsey attorney said, well, we have fired men for this as well, which gets into the really interesting, you know, puzzle Well, how do you investigate the sexual private life of a male employee on your staff? And oh, by the way, their contract doesn't include a specific list of behaviors or things that help define righteous living. This is a really interesting case, and I frankly think it's going to get settled out of court behind closed doors. If not, it's headed up to a higher court. And this could be kind of, A case that further defines the limits on religious believers who own for-profit companies, especially companies of the size of Ramsey Solutions.
1: Does it highlight something that perhaps journalists should look into, and that is the blurring of the lines or perhaps the blurry landscape, legal landscape, for for for-profit organizations run by – religious believers of any stripe and parachurch organizations or even church organizations.
0: Well, I mean a nonprofit, we are used to nonprofits, both liberal and conservative, having doctrines that they are defending, so to speak. When you get into corporate landscape, I think it's a whole other matter, having a for profit institution that's going to say, we have the following doctrines that we expect you to live by and support and we will even coerce your speech and your behavior on these issues. Now, conservative Christians right now would be up in arms if Apple or Google started forcing Christians to do things that violated their consciences. There's a an, an interesting paragraph later in the story where it mentions the woman, it quotes a woman, O'Connor, who is a Christian, doesn't believe, and by the way, there's a typo here. I'm going to fix it, typo in the story. O'Connor, who is a Christian, doesn't believe that avoiding premarital sex is a requirement of her faith, the lawsuit states. She believes that Christianity should not be, quote, be putative, hateful, vengeful, or judgmental nor does she believe her faith gives her a right to invade people's private lives or the company the right to invade her private life. Well, she, you know, here's an interesting case. Um, what if this woman is, um, not to pick on these liberal denominations, what if she's an Episcopalian or uh, a member of Presbyterian Church USA or the Evangelical Lutheran Church or anybody else that has basically begun to say that sex outside of marriage is pretty much a private matter and up to the individual and we're not even sure we want to use the word sin think of this this is a really interesting twist what if she sued Ramsey solutions for violating her religious freedom do you see how that could happen
1: Terry Mattingly a senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. And he is founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much.
0: Glad to be here.
1: I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly.
0: Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.